Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Hi there, lovely listeners, and thank you once again for joining me for another episode of the Beauty Podcast with Emma G, where I am joined by Roger Dove, the perfumer, the fragrance historian, quite frankly, my friends, the living legend. I get a bit giddy around Roger because he is so fabulous. The beautiful shirts, the beautiful outfits, the diamonds, Um, but also because he is so knowledgeable and so the best at what he does and listening to him talk about fragrance is like being taken on a verbal perfume lord of the rings adventure because he takes you to places and makes your imagination fire in ways that you would never think that it could about scent he um established the roger dove haute perfumerie in harrods um about 12 years ago i think which has become a total retail destination. He has his own, you could call it a concession in Harrods in their beauty hall, but I would I would rather describe it as an installation because it's um, made of Lalique and quite fabulous. And he has his own range of uh, Roger Parfum. He very generously gave me some time. I met him at his Burlington Arcade uh, boutique and uh, we got into it straight away and actually as you'll hear one of the things that he does he is a public speaker and he just holds the room and I sat transfixed for the length of this podcast just hanging on every single word he tells the most fascinating stories has the most fantastic anecdotes and every time I spend time with him I learn something and I think one of my most favorite things about Roger is that he's got a cheeky little glint in his eye and every now and again, so he'll say something and it will make you dissolve into fits of giggles. So yeah, you can tell I'm slightly in love with Roger. Um, and I hope you enjoy the conversation that we have. We talk all about creating perfume, how he started his perfume range. We talk about his, um, just everything that he does. And uh, yeah, I hope you enjoy it. Please do find us on Facebook, The Beauty Podcast with Emma G. Uh, Twitter is Emma G underscore beauty. Instagram is Emma Guns, where often you will find me updating, telling you who my future guests are, and that's where you can add your own questions. Or if you want to find out anything more, head to my website, emmagunnawardner.com, but don't you fret. I'm not going to expect you to know how to spell my name from just saying it. So all of the details of how you can get hold of me and also where you can find Roger will be in the show notes. Enjoy the episode. Thank you for tuning in to the Beauty Podcast with Emma G featuring... Let's get going. I've pressed record. Oh, Lord. 
Thank you for having me at your beautiful space in Thank the you. Burlington Arcade. Thank you for coming along. Thank you for asking me. Oh, I am so pleased that you agreed. <laughs> How can I say no to you? Oh, well. How long have we known each other? Oh, decades. Or, or a few years. We're, uh, we're well, I met you last week. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so if you have seen Roger or know anything about Roger, we are in this beautiful space that you have in Burlington Arcade. Um, which is lavished in purple velvets and mm. this is just wondrous. They're embossed coasters and personalised bottles of water which have not <laughs> gone unnoticed. This is the experience of hanging out with you, which is just wondrous. And I Thank can't you. take my eyes off your shoes or your rings. but <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> um, tell me a little bit about how it all began, because you're world famous now. Um... I fell in love with perfume when I was very, very young. I always say that I was six or seven, but I don't really know how old I was. But as a small boy, my mother was going to a cocktail party or a dinner, and she came to my bedroom wearing a gold lame cocktail dress, which I'm sure was the height of fashion. And interestingly, it seems that it's back in fashion again. <laughs> yes. but, um, but she was standing in the entrance of bedroom, my bedroom, and the landing light was on. So you have to imagine somebody wearing a metallic dress with light. It was as if there was a corona or a halo around her. Mm. And as a small child, I'd only ever seen that sort of image in a book. Yeah. That's the image of a fairy or an angel. And my mum came in and gave me a kiss goodnight. And I just remember the smell of her face powder and the smell of uh, the perfume she was wearing. And this image of, it was my ordinary mum was sort of suddenly transformed uh, and the perfume was something very, mm. very uh, intrinsic in that transformation. So I didn't sort of sit and think, oh, well, isn't perfume like that, but it, it was, became like a tattoo and I can still remember a lot about it. I can still remember the image of it very, very clearly. And now when I look back, I always say that I think that that was the moment that I was put on this path that I really do believe I was born to walk, which mm. might sound odd, but... I've never thought of anything but perfumery. And as a child, of course, I didn't think, oh, I'd like to be a perfumer, because I didn't know there were such things mm. as perfumers. But I became aware of smell. And so when I was in my teens, early teens, I used to spend all of my pocket money on... I used to save it up to buy little bottles of scent. And I think the thing that's impossible, unless you lived through it, as is true of any time, um, people wouldn't realise sort of pre-globalisation, that if you went into a perfumery literally in, in one town, if there was a perfumery here and another perfumery there, they would have a very, very different offering. Mm. Where, and if you went overseas, you know, if you suddenly went to Paris or you went to wherever you went, the offering would be totally different. There'd be some things that were standard, mm. but there were lots of very small companies, there was a lot of uh, variety, because the world was different. And um, today, whether I'm in a perfumery in... Uh, Shanghai or a perfumery in Dubai or a perfumery in New York or in London it's nearly all the same mm. so I found the, these little bottles of coloured liquid fascinating and the names also got me either the name of the, of the company that made mm. them or the name of the scent itself so I, I, I was um, drawn to it because I thought it was remarkably glamorous and 
it sort of took me to my own fantasy land, and I liked this idea of uh, personal escape, escapism. Mm. And so I always said that unstoppering these little bottles was like releasing a genie, and I still think perfumes like that, that it will take you on a, on a journey somewhere or other, mm. and maybe the end destination isn't where you thought it would be when you first encountered the scent. And I think perfume, scents, odours are remarkable because they have the ability to do just that. So I um, don't know what to say really. I mean, I thought I was going to maybe go to the world of medicine. I was quite good at languages when I was young and good at science. Um, in the end, I gave the languages up for, for science. Uh, one of my languages was Russian. I studied it for three years. I had an idea that I wanted to be um, maybe going to medical research in Russia. Don't ask me why. I really do believe too much Ian Fleming and, and, <laughs> and precociousness. Um, but unusual things always appeal to me. You know, I used to be uh, quite—I um, used to be quite a good pianist when I was young. I used to play the piano for about three hours a day, um, and I also learned to play the bassoon. But the reason I wanted to play the bassoon was everybody else wanted to play a flute or a clarinet, and my thing was, why would I want to do that? So I've never quite liked ordinary. I've always been—I've always found it appealing. The thing of things that aren't mainstream. Right. Uh, don't ask why, but I just always have. So with scent, um, I was totally hooked by it. It became an obsession is too strong a word, but uh, you know a real fascination. And then a long story which I won't go into, but uh, I ended up luckily being offered a job by Gerlin. I uh, had been writing to Gerlin literally around the world trying to research part of its history, as much of its history as I could. And in the, in, uh, at that time, it was still owned by the family of Guerlain. Three cousins owned it. And one of them, when he was in Britain, said to the managing director, who's Roger Dove, and she asked why, and he said up, he was, he was really fed up receiving uh, faxes and uh, phone calls or letters from the subsidiaries, because this is, of course, pre-email, asking if they could give information to this person called Roger Dove. And so this woman, who was a friend of mine, Aileen Taylor, ended up saying, well, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he said, well, why don't you give him a job? He'll be less of a nuisance in the house than he is out of it. Hmm. That's how I, how I started working for them. Uh, I, I knew her from uh, Cambridge. And she um, employed me. And I was in, the first job I was employed to do was to create a perfumery course for the company. That was my first job. That was my, uh, the thing I was charged to do. So the family always said that I knew more about their history than they did, which in one way is true, because if you, it's like a foreign, lang foreign language compared to your own. You study a foreign language. Mm. It's rare we actually study our own. Yes. So often you know, uh, the knowledge of grammar for a foreigner is maybe greater than ours. Yeah. So, in some areas, I think that maybe was true. So anyhow, so I had the knowledge of the company, and then they sent me off to uh, meet a lovely woman whose name was Nancy McConaughey. She was a very famous perfumer in her day. She made perfumes like Ivoire for Balmain, which was a smash hit, the once upon a when. And she had worked with Jean-Paul Guerlain, and so I went and spent time with her. And when I left, she gave me a gift of half a musk pod. And she said every perfumer should have um, their own musk pod. This was her sort of thing. And um, 
she had no doubt that one day maybe I would become a perfumer. That's what she thought. And I took the musk pot home, <coughs> and it was in a small, you know, uh, like a laboratory bottle, uh, screw top, it had tape around the edge. It was in bubble wrap inside a bag, and I put it down when I went home. And I've always had Siamese cats, which are always neutered. And this Siamese cat started calling around the bag. And I turned around and said to Peter, my partner, if anybody ever questions whether scent or mm -hmm. ingredients can have an effect, that thing, the cat, is not meant to know about any of this anymore. And look at it, it's going crazy. Wow. The thing is oh, my God. So, yeah, that's a slight sidetrack. So I then went off, I went to the south of France. Uh, they used to use a company called Robertse, who are really the Rolls-Royce of, of naturals. Mm. Each what we call compounding houses who produce oils um, have specializations. And Robertse's specialization are finest quality naturals. They will supply Chanel with many of theirs for uh, the old perfumes. They'll supply Guerlain, certainly Jean Patou. Those type of houses will use from Robertse. So not because of who I was, I was nothing. You know, I was just somebody starting a career. Um, so I went down to South France. I was suddenly greeted as if I was uh, somebody terribly important. As I say, not to do with me, but because of who <laughs> I worked for. But it exposed me. It exposed me to a whole world. Suddenly seeing the processing of raw materials. To suddenly see how or something like oris is made. Mm -hmm. Oris is the, the rhizome of the iris plant. Seeing why it takes years and what has to be done. You know, that made me... I was just blown away by it and by the sense of around me. So I, I devised my perfume course and um, it ended up becoming the industry standard. So anybody who joined the industry, if they were you know, the new buyer of House of Fraser or Harrods or Harvey Nichols or whatever, would come t uh, to me to learn about perfumery. And the thing that surprised everybody, I, I didn't have a talk about the brand I worked for. The course was based on perfumery. Mm. And so one day there was a, a lovely woman who I'm still in touch with, who was the press attaché at Guerlain. Uh, her name was um, Barbara Jackson. And she said, she said would, would you be prepared to do a day's training, to do your course for my press? So I remember saying to Willie, if you think they'd be interested, because I've never, ever, ever met a journalist before. You know, it's not my world. Why would I know? So um, They're a wonderful bunch. Of course they are. They're <laughs> fabulous. So um, I agreed, and I was standing in a, ho in a room in a hotel in um, Grosvenor Square, and I had, figuratively, you know, 24 or something, about two dozen of Britain's most important journalists, at a time when they really were still grand doyens. They're just one or two hanging on by a thread at the moment. But, you know, and when, when the world was different. Yes, yeah. And so these very, very grand doyens sitting in the room. And I ended up, I remember I looked and saw these people and suddenly thought, shit, what on earth have you agreed to do? Because I thought, what can I tell them that I'd be interested in? And I remember that my hands were absolutely wet where I was worked myself up. And I'm not normally a very nervous human being, certainly not to do with uh, stuff to do with work. Anyhow, so, you know, this, this is a long time ago. So my presentation was on a flip chart because, you know, data projectors... And all I that. cannot imagine you in a flip but chart. But it doesn't exist. I still always insist on one in a room because when equipment breaks, luckily I have all this stuff in my brain. And so 
I can just sit and do it. Anyhow, so I'm merrily standing. I'm starting to talk to this group that I think are the most omniscient people in the whole wide world. And I start, so I've got my back over it as I'm talking, as I'm writing. And when I turned back, when I'd finished writing, I suddenly saw everybody was writing. And I thought, oh, well, maybe they are interested. And it just made me feel comfortable and off I went. And what's very funny, you know, lots of people who were in that room um, have now made huge careers as journalists. Mm. Uh, and some of them tell me they still once in a while re refer back to that notebook. Um, so that was how I first started to meet the press. And meeting the press was very interesting for me, but also important for me, because... If you imagine if there's something you're really fascinated by and you love, and then you meet somebody who's really fascinated in that topic and they ask you questions, particularly if they're quite what I would consider a really interesting question, or that creates an interesting thought mm -hmm. or train of thought, it, of course, is fantastic. So I remember you know, the, the first journalist I met after that, we went to the Caprice when it was really you know, the coolest place. I mean, it's still fabulous, but when it was the coolest place yes. on God's earth. And so I merely was having lunch in the Caprice with this fabulous journalist who started to ask me questions about <clears throat> something very particular. And I was talking about what we call Chypre perfumes, which one's based on mosses and woods. And uh, the journalist thought this was all fascinating. And then, you know, something like two months later, there was this whole story in the magazine uh, based around, without any question, this lunch we had. And I thought that was fantastic. I thought it was fantastic because suddenly, not only have I got to meet somebody and had a lovely exchange with them, mm. with the journalists, this journalist is now writing all this stuff. Mm. And all this stuff suddenly means that thousands of people have access to information, mm. which there wasn't an internet. And so how did you find that information out? Mm. Um, and so that was the beginning of it, and I suddenly thought, oh, the press is fantastic, because you... And it was freer for the press. The press didn't have the pressures from the publishers that you've got to support the advertisers and all that stuff. So uh, I think it was easier, in, in, in a way, because they had more freedom. Mm. There was, they still were doyens or something, so they would say, this is what's going on the page. Yes, yeah. So it, it sort of all started like that, and then I... Um, I ended up learning about the raw materials, and then eventually they saw that I had an aptitude toward making perfumes. Uh, and so I started to train in perfumery, but at, uh, at Gerhard, everything at the time was made by a member of the family, and that was that. So the first person I ever made a perfume for was the uh, receptionist. There was, there was this fabulous receptionist. Her name was uh, Dee. I can't remember what her surname was, but Dee. And Dee was quite short, and very, very Rubenesque. I mean, she had, she was so curvy and she had such big bosoms that her bosoms used to often rest on the desk. But she was very short and she had fantastically manicured hands. And You've also, painted a beautiful picture, but, you really but, have. But she, yeah. she was just very sexy and very fabulous and had an absolute penchant for firemen. And <laughs> We had a tea lady. I don't, is, is this what you want to know? Yeah, like, this, this is, is amazing. So she, but there was this fabulous tea lady, this Irish lady, who very often would put the toast in and then go off and do something else and forget the toast was in. The toast would catch on fire. <laughs> now, you have to imagine the amount of alcohol we had in the premises. Christ, so yes. immediately, if the fire alarm went off, three fire tenders would come. Always three. Uh, because it literally could be explosive if there really was a fire, but it was always normally Nelly, the tea lady, um, who who had burnt 
the toast. But Dee loved it because she loved firemen. <laughs> so we always wondered whether Dee ended up asking Nelly every now and then to make sure the toast burned. <laughs> Anyhow, that's the whole, whole story. So um, You made a fragrance for Dee. So, yes, I thought that she... I, I, li- I liked her hugely. And um, I decided that I would make a scent for her. So this was my first attempt at scent making. And um, so I gave it to her as a present. And she totally fell in love with it and she wore it and so, ooh, so that was that and then in 2000 and, um, in the year 2000 I had just had a very very large uh, article written about me, I think it was about a five page or seven page article in uh, one of the magazines and it caused a little bit of an upset in Paris it's a big story, the thing that really caught it's inappropriate for me to say why it caused a, a problem and I decided that uh, I reported into the global vice president of the company, which I think most people in my industry don't realise. Mm. So I had this rather odd job within the firm that nobody really quite knew what I did, which was lovely. Um, and so I had a, a, a mail through from the president of the company. And, of course, as the president, he can think whatever he liked. But what I took, I took exception to how he wrote what he wrote. Right. And I decided that um, I would leave the firm within a year. <clears throat> the difficulty was I didn't know quite what I could do because whilst you know I respect and love many many companies in my industry and what they stand for and what they do I suddenly thought well if I suddenly rock up at them one of them that I would lose credibility mm. because I would I would I felt like I would be selling selling myself yeah. uh, so I can't quite explain it it didn't feel right and I couldn't think of there wasn't a company I loved enough and respected enough that I would go to work for, having had the great privilege of working and training for this remarkable perfumery company. So I decided um, that I'd give myself a year to find a job, and I was offered to do something very, very strange, which was nothing at all to do with perfumery, which suited me just fine. And so I decided I'd resign. I worked a five and a half month notice because I had so many things in, well a lot of things, I had a trip to Australia that had been two years in the planning uh, coming and I didn't want anybody to be able to turn around and say, oh he let us down with, or Mm. just didn't want it. So I wanted to leave knowing everything I was committed to do would be done. So I left on Halloween, I chose the date (laughs) and I thought that was huge fun, Um, it just appealed to me going off with the the witches. Cackling into the moonlight. So um, and so, I opened my company on November the first, two thousand and one, having no idea, you know, whether it would work. It was, as you imagine, I'd worked with the firm for twenty years. I reported to the global vice president. So all that comes with that, the security that comes mm. with that, something I said bye bye to. And um, Peter, I remember Peter saying to me, uh, once I resigned. Um, he said to me that how good it was. He said, "There's nothing else for you to do. You, mm. you know, you need to leave." And um, I went to America. I resigned on a th- on a Thursday. I remember distinctly, and went to America on uh, that Saturday. I knew that Vogue were right. Vogue wrote that I'd left the company, and that's very unusual mm. for a magazine like Vogue to say somebody's changed job. Um, but for some reason, they wrote about it. And I rock up in New York, uh, a friend of mine uh, was the president of Gala, who 
has a very fabulous apartment, uh, penthouse apartment on 57th Street. So I suddenly said to her, Marge, I've done it. She said, come with me. So we went up onto the terrace. And she said, when you're leaving, blah, 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 blah. And said, but you've got to carry on coming here. And so I, um, she said, you have to carry on coming here. She said, I'll give you eight to ten weeks' work a year, I guarantee you, but you can't tell anybody you've left. So I remember saying, well, I won't tell if you don't tell if you think you can give it a secret. Because, I, you know, it was great for me. I suddenly had somebody offering me income. Mm. And so I sort of sorted out a little contract for a project here that I was working on. And suddenly that came. Anyhow, within six months, I was working for a lot of different companies. Um, I set up uh, Procter & Gamble's Global Training Department, which most people won't realize. I worked with Mr. Valentino. Um, on, a, on a project which was a lovely, lovely experience. He, uh, half the stuff nobody in the world knows, apart from the people who are involved in it, but I, um, I don't think I've ever told journalists that you know, this half of the stuff. So um, they hosted a dinner at his, his palazzo for 50 people, mainly press from around the world, and of course Mr. Valentino and his partner, and some people from PNG and me. And then the next day, I, um, I, Mr. Valentino, me, and another, they split us into groups of three, English-speaking, Spanish-speaking, and French-speaking, and they spent 20 minutes with him, 20 minutes with me, and 20 minutes in the atelier, and then everybody moved around. And uh, he was fascinating, and I always remember him saying something wonderful. He gave a little talk in the dinner, and he said, that his style, he realized, has been in and out of fashion. But he's never fundamentally changed his belief. And his belief is that it's our duty, each of our own personal duty, to make the best of ourselves. He said, because the day you don't is the day you bump into a friend who's not very kind. And I thought that was just perfect. I really thought it was perfect. Because it's true, we've all done it. You know, the day you suddenly rush out to do something, you bump into something, shit. (laughs) I wish I I hadn't, or I wish I had done such and such. So anyhow, so that was that. And then um, at around that time, I was approached by, uh, because of the big article, Mm -hmm. uh, I had been invited to um, a charity fundraiser, which Stephen Fry was hosting, um, as their guest. And I was you know, get an invitation for a charity thing. I turned around and said to Peter, oh, great, buy me two tickets. And he said, no, 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 you're invited. I said, yeah, that's great, but buy me two tickets. He said, no, they've invited you as guests. <laughs> it, I couldn't compute that I was invited to a charity fundraiser as the point is to raise money. Anyhow, I presume what they do is trawl the press and things to see who they think might be interesting. So that particular day, I was obviously interesting. <laughs> so um, I went to the thing, and the man who hosted the table was just brilliant. He had, his name was John Wynne Williams, uh, who's a great philanthropist, I've since learned. And he really had taken the time to do homework on everybody at the table. So he made these fantastic conversations just mm. And we had, we believe we had the best table in the whole room, because through him. Mm. And of course, you know, we thought we had such a fabulous time, we couldn't let the evening finish. So I remember that a group <laughs> of us all went off to the fumoir at Claridge's to keep the, oh, keep the party going. Happy place. And um, a while later, he invited me for, for dinner at his home. And so I walked into dinner, and then as a person, um, uh, to say I'm on guard isn't quite right, but I'm always a little bit nervous. 
cynical, sceptical, frightened, don't know what the right words are. Anyhow, I arrived um, at the dinner and I remember I asked if I could bring, can I bring a friend, sounding a little bit like a child in school, <laughs> playing, can I bring my friend? So anyhow, um, I went, and I can't remember who came with me, but somebody came with me. And then there was this fantastic moment in the meal when he said, I had a reason to invite you. And I sort of ended up thinking, no shit. I, sort of, <laughs> I kind of worked that one out before um, I had even arrived. Anyhow, he said, um, there's a charity auction, which is held once a year, which is always held, held in the great room at Christie's. Would I be prepared to make uh, a cent for this thing? And as he started talking to me, everybody at the table stopped talking, and they all looked at me, and I thought, great, I've been set up. <laughs> I always thought, great, I've been set up. And I have a fear of small dinner parties. You can put me in front of a TV camera, you can put me in front of an auditorium of 350 people, and I'm not in the least nervous. A small dinner party, if I don't know the people, makes me very fearful. Um, you know, I'm nervous of, uh, if the conversation isn't easy, if I don't yeah. like the people. It just makes... I, I'm very... Um, I hope that I'm a very... How I am is how I am. And I don't like being somewhere where I maybe have to be a different person out of politeness. Yes. Don't like it. So anyhow, so I was already a bit like that. And then he said that and everybody stopped talking and looked at me. And I thought, shit, I've been set up. It's like a scene so, from a movie. So I, turn, so I turned around and said to him, um, no, I don't think I'd like to do that at all. And I can't remember either that took a drink of snacks like back in my mouth. And the conversation all began. But of course, we're sitting there rolling around in my brain. I thought, okay, well, that really would be a lovely thing to do. Mm. Um, so I said to him quietly, you know, what I'd, I'd love to meet up with you to chat about it. So I knew the people at Baccarat, and so I phoned this fantastic woman, who was like a caricature of a French woman, who had been the publisher of French Vogue for some like 26 years. Her name was, is Brigitte Berry. And I said to her, Brigitte, I've been asked if I'd create a perfume for a charity auction. It's a really important charity, Terence Higgins Trust London Lighthouse, one of the main HIVMA's charities in Britain. It's in uh, Christie's, so you know, it's a piece of positioning for you. <laughs> so would you be prepared to blow a bottle for me? And the bottle I'd love was designed in 1925 for the Decorative Art Fair, for which we get the term Art Deco, by Georges Chevalier. And because she's clever, because she worked in the world she'd worked in, um, she said, well, if you have the mood, ran it. <laughs> and so they re-blew blew this bottle from the most important decorative exhibition there's ever been. And so that was my idea. I put the bottle up empty with the idea that whoever bought it, I would make the scent. Because I thought, that <sighs> if I make a scent and you don't like it, you're never going to bid on it. But if you have the chance to have something made just for you, yes. then... Um, Maybe you'll spend more money. So the lot went up. It was up against a Mercedes sports car, a brand new Mercedes sports car, which you could have for two years. It was up against a holiday for six or eight people, can't remember, in the Maldives, and other things. They were like the, the two big top lots. Mm. And my perfume fetched the most money. And the person that bought it decided, their partner decided they had to have one. So from it, I was very proud and pleased that I'd done the same for the charity. And I was also proud and pleased for myself to understand that there were people who cared how they smelled, mm. and very pleased for myself because I got my first paying client. Yes. I thought, great, I now know how I'm going to come back into the perfumery industry. It's going to be by making bespoke perfumes. Wow. And so that was the, that was the beginning of it. 
And so, interestingly, I also made a decision that I would never, I would never actively talk about it or promote it to the press. And so if anybody could ever be bothered and looked on the net, you'll find that it's very rare I ever talk about my uh, bespoke work. Mm. And so around the same time, it's kind of almost the end of the story, <laughs> uh, around the end of that time, uh, around the same time, everyone, um, I was asked uh, into Harrods for a cup of tea. Uh, literally before I was seated, it was announced, we'd like to open a perfumery with you. <gasps> and I said, Really? I just like a cup of tea, please. You know when something you're not expecting mm. something. I'd never thought to open a shop. It's not, you know, it wasn't my world at all. Retail. I make things. It's what I do. I make things. <clears throat> and so after a pot of tea, we came with this idea of creating a perfumery, which was the first of its type anywhere in the world. Because my point was, well, why do I want to open a shop? You've got a beautiful perfumery, and the world really doesn't need another one. And so my idea was that I would write a list of all the brands that I thought made fabulous things, mm -hmm. where the brand was great, but just because the brand's great doesn't mean everything they've ever made's great, as we all know. So I wrote a list of the scents that, in my opinion, were the greatest examples of their type. And then went to the houses and said, look, we've got this idea. What we don't want is your brand. It's not mm -hmm. what this perfumer is about. What I'd like are these perfumes, and would you remake that one for me? And uh, I had a very interesting conversation at Dior. <coughs> I wanted Dior, Diorama and Diorling, and the conversation I had with the managing director was fantastic because they told me we don't make them. And I said, yes, you do. So we had this, no, we don't, yes, you do. And I'm thinking, well, you manage the company, so you ought to know what you make, mm. I'm thinking. We're trying to be very polite because I want the <laughs> two perfumes, of course. And so I said, but you've never not made them. You've always sold them in the Avenue Montagne. So what I'm asking is if you'll make them for me. And they used to do the beautiful Baccarat obelisks for Miss Dior. And so we had all these things made. Uh, so that was what the perfumery was about. So it wasn't about whether it was old or whether it was new. It wasn't just to be able to say, oh, it's exclusive. Mm. It was because Dioling and Diorama were made by Rudnitska. Rudnitska is a genius, was a genius, blah, blah. So there was a reason for it. And every single house agreed. So it was the first perfumery on earth where somebody had got the brands to agree to allow someone to cherry pick. So it was a very personal edit. Mm. And I was trying to explain the concept to somebody. And they said, well, it's like the difference between Pret-a-Porter and Haute Couture. This is like Haute Parfumerie. And as I said it, I said, that's the name, because we've been trying to think of a name. Mm. It's a Haute Perfumery. Today, there is literally not a perfumery that opens in Europe that doesn't use the term Haute Parfumerie, but it was the first. And it was the first, at the time, you have to bear in mind that our industry had been brought up by three major detergent manufacturers, the bulk of it, who were launching scent with a free gift. The industry was so debased that they didn't believe a scent in its own right just being new would sell. Mm. They were launching them with a gift. And so this perfumery, most of the managing directors of the firms understood, because it was also in Harrods, most famous shop on earth, mm. that they wanted to get uh, to reposition themselves. They understood that where they were going wasn't really very tenable. Yeah. And this was the perfect place in the most important store on earth. And so we, we, launched, uh, we launched it, and it was a success from the first day. The concept, it, it was really, I'm not saying I did it on my own, 
of course I'm not that arrogant, everything is a cog in the wheel. Um, but if you look at perfumery today, it's all about the word I hate, niche. It's all about small niche brands. Uh, the big brands see that niche is the way, so they try to make niche collections with their mm. own, within their own portfolios. And it all started there, and Harrods last, uh, year before last, last year, I can't remember, uh, launched a new floor, the sixth floor, called the Salon de Parfum. In my perfumery, the Haute Parfumerie, the area where we um, invite people to sit for a consultation, we always call it Salon de Parfum. So that whole floor, the concept comes from the work of the Haute Parfumerie. But of course, lots of people were coming up there and thinking that either I was sitting there mixing, <laughs> people didn't get it to begin with, you know, yes. didn't quite get it. And so people thought they were going to bump into me sitting, mixing stuff up or whatever. But the most important thing, people were coming in asking for perfumes of mine. Well, I didn't have any of my perfumes. It wasn't what that perfumery was about, because they were still only doing bespoke. Then in 2009, my mother died. Uh, I was devastated by it. And one, a little while after my mum died, I was having dinner with a lovely woman called June Lawler, who's a friend of mine. I see her about twice a year. Our, we have a sort of one of those little rituals that you don't know is a ritual, and then one day you say, wasn't it funny, we always do this when mm. we meet up. So we always normally have, we always have a salad and two glasses of Montrachet. It's sort of our thing, always in Claridge's. So we're merrily sitting there, me thinking, thank you, me thinking, thank you, have it. Me thinking that um, I'm dealing with it quite well. Knowing I'm not, but mm. thinking to the outside world I'm putting on this good face. And she gave me this enormous metaphoric slap around the face, which went on for about three hours. And everything she said to me, I knew that I couldn't disagree with. She said to me that I um, have spent my life promoting other people's work, um, curating other people's work, protecting other people's work. Um, and said, when, you, when you're going to do it for your own work. And then ended up saying, you know, how long can you carry on schlepping around, which was the turn of phrase years, doing what you're doing? How long can you do it for? What's your end plan? What's retirement for you? What's this? Blah, blah. And then she said, you know, when I come here, referring to Claridge's, she, she got married, she was married, and then got married again to another person, sort of the proper grown-up marriage <laughs> and she got married in carriages and she said you know when I stayed here all the amenities were made by so and so said beautiful brand so what do they have to do with perfumery not a perfumery company why isn't it yours and the conversation just went on like that and of course what can you say well it, it isn't mine because I've never thought to do it mm. and a lot of it which a lot of people won't realize about me um, I, I didn't believe that anybody would be interested enough. That might sound stupid, but I didn't think people would be interested enough. And it really hadn't crossed my mind. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. 
Anyhow, by the end of the meal, uh, I decided that I had a, a huge epiphany, and I decided that I would launch uh, my, my own range of perfumes. I have lived with my partner, Peter, all of my life, so all that comes with that, um, we decided we would do it. We, I decided, uh, my mother was the most fun and upbeat person you could possibly imagine. When she was 80, my nephew bought a motorbike, she wanted to go riding on the back of it. <laughs> my mum was huge fun. And um, I only ever heard her say one melancholic thing, which one day she turned around and said that with this generation of the family, the family name died out and it upset her. So my great epiphany was, when well, I can launch this, and on the back of every bottle in the tiniest writing, on the back of every box, which most people won't even notice, it says a fragrance by Roger Dove. It's tiny. Mm -hmm. It's the only place my name, family name appears. I thought if it works, if it survives, then I have ended up making sure the family name doesn't die out. And it's the only way I can mm -hmm. do it. So Peter and I put our life savings into tubes and caps and bottles and boxes and mardi tar. I went to Harris and said, just to let you know, ooh, I'm launching a range of perfumes, because I hoped that uh, the press have always been very kind to me, and uh, I hoped that maybe the press might write about it. So I wanted to let them know, because I have a relationship with them, mm -hmm. of course, out of politeness, so, so they didn't suddenly see something in the papers or uh, magazines without knowing. And uh, the buyer said to me, well, tell me more, so I told her some more. And then she said, I want it on the ground floor. I want it here. So it was like one of those real pinch me moments. And I said, remember saying to her, you can ask her, I said to her, really? <laughs> she said, yes, yes, I want it on the ground floor. So I then had to ask a question, which may come across stupid, having worked in this industry all of my life, how much do I make? Because I had no idea. I'd never had a commercial product. So I don't know, you know, is five a week a lot for Harrods? Is 500 a week a lot for Harrods? <clears throat> so we came with this idea of... Um, the number, she, she said, make this amount, it will last you between four and six months. And within ten days, with no advertising, we sold out of every piece of stock. And it is, and still is, the most successful launch in Harrods history, with no advertising. Mm. So, I love it because I think that it proves that David really can beat Goliath. I think that if you follow what you, what you feel, what you believe and what you know, uh, you will always succeed over a large organization, personally. Because large organizations are full of people who on their own aren't very talentful. It is often the strength of the big organization that mm. gives them an over-inflated idea of what they're able to do, in my opinion. Um, and most things they do are always done by committee. And a committee will always give you the lowest common denominator. Mm. So we launched it. We launched on July the 2nd, 2011. My parents' anniversary would have been July the 3rd, so I launched it as near to my parents' anniversary as I could. And again, I remember walking into that store on, it was a Saturday, um, because I was asked to talk about it to everybody, as it was a new brand. And again, I remember, it's any other time, I can never remember having wet hands as I walked up to it thinking, what the fuck have you done? <laughs> because it was, Peter, my life savings. My entire life savings were suddenly in tubes and boxes. And, mm. <clears throat> and um, I just thought, it was the first time ever, I thought, will it work? All the time it was an intellectual process, the thing of creating it. Mm. 
it was what I knew I wanted to do, but suddenly it's like, oh shit, there it is, and will it work? Will people like it? And uh, luckily it was a success from the first day. The maidens, you see on the top, we always have these maidens, uh, which are made, were designed by René Lalique, and they're still made by Lalique, uh, and they're called Reverie, which of course is to dream. Mm. And nobody will know most likely why I choose to have them there, but I think perfume is about that, it's about a dream. Spray of perfume removes you from the everyday, from reality, mm. from the face you look at in the mirror, from the partner that puts you down. It allows us all mm. to dream. It's, uh, I love uh, scent because I think it's the most egalitarian thing that exists. It's kind to everybody. It's totally non-judgmental. Yeah. And I love it for that reason. So that's that. So we, um, we now sell in 120 places around the world. Uh, in nearly every store we sell, we rank in the top three with no advertising, no marketing. We have a very, very close relationship with our clients. Um, I pers I, I, the reason I was a few minutes late, I've just finished a three-page letter to a client I wrote to mail in about something. Um, <clears throat> so it's a very, very personal relationship. Very, very personal relationship with the uh, team. We, we employ 42 people. 40-something people. <laughs> um, I don't really, I'm not very clever with numbers. I think 42 people. The family, I, it has, sorry, the company has this very, very strong family feel. Mm. It's, uh, if you talk to anybody in the company, they'll tell you that. It's a very, very supportive um, company. And uh, I think that I have the most remarkable people working with me. Um, I've always understood that the most important people in any company are the sales staff. Because, if, you know, at the end, they're dealing with a lot of rubbish half the time, really. Um, and without them... I can make whatever I like, but no one will know about it. So, and then the proud... I've really been talking for a long time, haven't I? I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just hanging on. I the, the didn't last, know so much of this, yeah, Well, And the last uh, thing, the proudest moment of my working career was I had a telephone call from... So you have to... I always ask people to think of this as just you at home. You're at work. Mm -hmm. So you're sitting in an office. Yep. And just imagine that one day phone goes, so somebody picks the telephone up, and they call across to you, because they're sitting near to you, having put the phone on mute, and say, got Downing Street on the line. <laughs> well, it's what happened to me one day. So I always say to people, I'm just doing my work. So I said, oh, okay. So, you know, <laughs> so the call came in, hello, Roger Dove here, and they said, we'd like you to, we'd like you to come to 10 Downing Street. So... Okay, and you have to bring your passport and for identification, so off I went. <coughs> Pardon me, I remember asking the car to stop a little bit away, because I knew, of course, there's huge security. So I thought, I really need to see how the security thing works. So I don't want to walk up and look like a total idiot. <laughs> I needed need to look as I'm used to wandering in. So I sort of stood back to watch and then saw how you get in. So mm -hmm. I apparently swanned up and asked the policeman, you give your name and ID and then you go through the security thing and suddenly I'm at the door that we have all seen a thousand yes. times on the TV or in the press and in you go and la 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 and so again not knowing why I'd been asked and they said they have this fantastic campaign which I'm sure you're aware of the Great Britain campaign mm. which I think is one of the most brilliant initiatives and it celebrates all the things that we are fantastic at in Britain uh, around the world and so I was asked that they would, I think, to be a, a, an, an ambassador for Great Britain. 
um, for my creative work. And it was one of those huge pinch-me moments. You know, it was just really a pinch-me moment. Mm. And so, I'll think about it. No, of course, <laughs> <laughs> no, of no I don't want to do that. You didn't relive uh, that. <laughs> uh, no, of course, said, what an honour it was. I mean, and really a huge honour. And then if you look at who the other ambassadors for Great Britain are for the Great Britain campaign, it's astonishing. And so... I, we luckily were just about to open in America. We'd already, you know, in Bergdorf Goodman. And um, I learnt, understood, that I was able to use the embassy or consulate. So, of course, in New York, it's consulate. So we got in contact with uh, Danny Lopez, Her Majesty's Consulate General for New York, um, to say, you know, this is what we'd like to do. And we wanted to do our press launch in... Uh, and he said, yes, so it was all set up. The invitations suddenly all come out on official stage. So it's nothing to do with us anymore, quite rightly. So the, it all comes out on official letterhead. And that's just down at the top. <laughs> and um, so, you know, I've received very few invitations like that in my life. You know, I had one for the French ambassador or something. So, that, you know, these great big envelopes come boom. Yes. card inside <laughs> well suddenly your diary can come free <laughs> because you don't get but it's true isn't it? you, yeah. so you don't well I don't maybe you do but I don't get invitations like that very often in my life so of course the same effect happened mm. in um, with the American press so I'm in a room with the most important press of the states all standing there Danny Lopez Consular General by my side Andy Warhol portrait of the Queen and the Union flag and I had no idea who was going to... I thought <clears throat> I, we were just using the space, and how lovely is that, that we're mm. in the consulate. And, no, no, he hosted it, so he stood up the front and ended up saying how, how privileged he was um, to be able to have me there. And I understand, I think, really... I have a few really moments and pinch-me moments, which most people don't... That's what makes you so lovely. But, I, um, but then I started talking, and I'm really not a, you know... I'm really not bad at talking and giving talks, and I can talk about my uh, topic. I don't need notes. Uh, mm. If I don't know it, I shouldn't be doing it, sort of thing. And I've lived it all of my life. And so I started talking, and after about two sentences, I felt my th- I, I heard my voice crack. Mm. And so I just stopped and breathed, and I started to talk again. And as I went to talk, no voice came out, but just tears came. <gasps> I, I just stood almost retching where I was crying my shoulders going up and down. And all I suddenly thought, you know, this is about, I'm being figurative, three months after being made an ambassador of Great Britain. And all I thought was, I wish my parents were here to see it. Mm. And um, and then I managed to pull myself together and I started talking and, and off we go. So I do find it remarkable that um, there's something about what I create that people resonate with mm. and, I, it, and it's really that I think that I see without wanting to sound arrogant but I see other brands who have tried to emulate bits of it terms of phrase that I've used you know absolute précieuse uh, it's playing on the thing that a, a particular type of oil is called an absolute mm. which is why it's a precious oil absolute précieuse a very famous house it's irrelevant who have taken half of that name the term extrait suddenly is being 
all of course it doesn't matter, it's funny, but <clears throat> I think it's funny that I just sit and do what I do, and always have done what I do, um, and suddenly very big brands sort of look at what we do and are taking notice of it, and a very uh, funniest thing, a very, very famous brand, a very cool brand, a very famous brand, uh, came over from their offices in New York and bought one of everything I make. So I presume it's because they thought they smelled beautiful. Mm. <laughs> but, you know, that just made me laugh. I just thought it was funny. So, um, so that's it, really. I don't know what else to tell you. So we, you know, the brand's been going for five years this year. Um, I, and, and I still sort of pinch me. A lot of people, you must be so proud, and, and never stop to think of it that way. I mean, I just think, what it, I think it's lovely that people... F just find something in my work that mm. they that they like. In some of these interviews, when I'm talking about people who create, when I'm talking to people who've created brands, we talk about the challenges, or we talk about things that projects they have previously done that perhaps didn't work, and it, something always is coming through, um, and that is that if passion is at the heart of your business, oh. you can take it somewhere really. Definitely. Wonderful. I, th I, I think I, I think it's totally that, and it's um, I, I think that if you don't really believe well, if you don't really believe in something you've made, mm. why should anybody else? That maybe is a cliche. I don't mm. know if that's a common saying, but you know, if I believe that what I make the inspir the inspiration, at least the way the inspiration the inspiration comes from the funniest things. Mm. You know? I have a collection called Profumo d'Amore. Uh, it comes from two things. One is something that I maybe have quoted to you somewhere along the line, uh, I've talked about for years. I always knew, don't ask me quite why, but I always knew that Casanova used to have a chocolate pot every night. And the reason that it stuck in my mind is because he used to grate uh, ambergris on the top. And ambergris is my favourite raw material. And yes, so maybe that's fascinating. Why, so maybe that's why it stuck in my mind. So I thought, okay, so this is how my mind works. So I thought, okay, so chocolate pot. So chocolate's made of cacao. Cacao is the anchor, the Aztecs and the Incas thought was a stimulant. So take that to Casanova and you've got where my brain sometimes yep. goes and you know me well enough to know that. So I'm <laughs> thinking, okay, so we've got, we have inside chocolate, cacao, which is a stimulant, vanilla, which is a proven psychogenic aphrodisiac, which means uh, an aphrodisiac, the, Real uh, meaning of it is something that enhances pleasure. It doesn't necessarily mean sexual, but mm -hmm. all pleasure. Psychogenic means the entire nervous system. So, vanilla is going to make everything far more pleasurable. We've got the cacao, which is a stimulant, and we have uh, ambergris, which is also known as an aphrodisiac. So I thought, fabulous! I'm going to make what I call the Casanova Accord. Never tell customers that, but it's Casanova Accord. So. <laughs> I thought uh, this, these ingredients would make a wonderful basis for a collection. So, because the story was Casanova, I also thought, if I think of the French, which most people, when we think of romance and love, I'm sure most many people would think of the French, but I always think with French you have um, a very romantic race, which means that maybe it's about talking or Whereas Italians are very passionate, and it boom, it's that. And one of my dearest friends <clears throat> was from Sardinia, and everything in his life was so complicated. And when he fell for somebody, Christ, did the world know about it? And so I thought this whole idea of passion, 
And so the story, there are three perfumes, and the first one, so my idea was that when you meet somebody, of course that's not love, it's something totally different. But hopefully, maybe, this passion turns into something else. And we all hope that in a relationship, at the beginning, one day you will hear somebody whisper the words, Amore mio, my love. So that is something tender and gentle, and so when you smell the scent, hopefully that's what you feel. And then later, if the love does begin to grow, still with the passion, you'll have a big declaration of love. Tiamo, I love you, or my love. And then in the end, the thing I think most people would hope would always happen is that love will last, and so the last scent is called un, un amore eterno, an eternal love. And so I had this idea that on the box I would put these three names, three, three uh, names of the scents, and then make a ring around the profume d'amore, because this story, if you have eternal love, the person is always amore mio. Mm. So it makes a continuum, and a very soft thing which most customers would never... I don't know if I told you, I design and do all of, all of it, visuals, the mm. megalomaniac. No, but it's, um, and so my thought was this, almost like a poem, a love poem, is a circle. And the circle, of course, is a reflective of the thing you give when you do feel all those things, a ring. Which most people may never make a connection between the mm. ring and the circle, but that was the idea. So um, the sense, uh, if you don't have... If you don't feel that, mm. if you don't feel that, how do you actually create it, I think. Mm. And I think that, and then the scents have to reflect totally what I've just explained. And so I, uh, I try to go all around the world to train the staff. So I meet the staff. I'm the only perfumer I know who does it. I travel always to train the staff. And um, I'll explain the story, but then make them smell it so they can mm. see is what I just described truly how it is. And you smell as you go through the three perfumes. If you smell the third one, then quickly go back to the first. You smell the first one, you feel it's tiny, because it's the beginning of a love story. Mm. Whereas you feel the depth in the third one. Or I made a, a collection called Parfum de la Nuit. So my perfumes normally have very strong names, as you know. Fetish, reckless, scandal, danger. They're pr provocative, they're meant to be. Whereas these don't, they have some numbers, one, two, three. And the reason they have numbers is because I think the nighttime is all about fantasy. Mm. When you go out at night, how you approach life is different, it's fantasy. You go to a club, it's not like normal life, it's fantasy. So I didn't want to put names on them, I wanted that you could use your imagination. And with those perfumes, I, um, because of the way my working life is, I generally don't, my evenings really finish sometime between 11 or 12, which is when I very often start talking to my friends. <clears throat> and so I thought about how different we all become at night. And under the safety of darkness, we do things, we behave differently. So I thought, okay, so we're in a bar, we're in a restaurant, we're in a club, and you look up and there's the entrance and you suddenly see somebody walking in. And the person walking in, you see, is very self-assured. I mean, really so self-confident. So you feel the strength of the character. They're not loud, they're not noisy, that's not what I'm talking about. It's just somebody Physical so self-assured yeah. has presence. Mm. 
And this person is most certainly somebody who looks around a room and thinks, it will be you. <laughs> and maybe if you're sitting there and looking up, if you like the idea of a strong, competent person, you'll be something, oh, I hope it's me. Um, and my thought with that is, when did you ever hear any of your friends or you say, well, oh, I really fancy them, they're really weak? We don't <laughs> like, as human beings, we don't like weak people. We like strong, we don't like overbearing people, mm. but we like self-assured people. So when you smell scent number one, it's very that. It's leathery and big, confident. And you need to be confident to wear a leather perfume. It's Arnold Schwarzenegger smoking a cigar. I'd be guided by you, too. <laughs> <laughs> and then scent number two. I, so this person seduces because they're characterful. Scent number two, I thought of somebody who seduces in a very different way. But they know, of course, exactly what they're doing. Mm. That they, they start chat. You've seen them come in. Nice looking, you start the conversation. And then the whole thing of personal space. Of course, if you get on with somebody, you allow them to get a little nearer, and that little nearer, if you like, the more gets a little nearer until mm. in the end you're very close. So I thought this person is the sort of person that would then push their thigh up against yours and leave it there for just long enough till you get that exchange of warmth, and then they pull away. And then they'd whisper something in your ear, as if they're telling you something from the menu or whatever. But they'd make sure their breath was on the side of your cheek. And then they'd pull away. They have to always pull away, because if they don't, you would end up understanding immediately mm. what they're up to, and you don't know them that well. Mm. So that could be too much too fast. Whereas those little exchanges are exciting, if you've allowed them to get that. Really, some might say. So fragrance number two is about softness, because this this approach has to be soft. Mm. And the third one I had in my mind, uh, when you're in a bar, restaurant or club, you can sometimes look around and see somebody who looks like nobody else. Could be because where they were born, so their ethnic origin, could be because how they're dressed, whatever. There's something about them that just makes them stand out from the crowd. Mm. And that person, if you see them and you like what you see, you can't take your eyes off them. If you don't like it, you look away. But if you like it, you'll find you keep being drawn mm -hmm. back to them. So this was somebody who seduces. They don't even know they're doing it. They do it because they're exotic. They're different to mm -hmm. the other people. So those ideas float into my mind. And then we come with all the small details. So like, if you look at our, I don't know if you've seen the light, if you look at our plaques, they're yellow gold. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the ones for Parfum de René, they're rose gold. Oh, the yes. reason why you would never see bright yellow at night. Yes. If you, but it will change. If you look at the cap, which looks black, if you look at it next to black, you actually see it's anthracite. And the reason why, black under moonlight would become this colour. This is so, a level of detail, Roger, that you just... Well, you said right at the beginning, I have water with, uh, you know, Rod Roger Powell found water. Yes. Well, we wanted it because I actually slightly disagree with bottled water, mm. personally. I think the idea of shipping water from France or Italy is utterly absurd. Mm. I think the idea of this water comes from the South Downs, where I live, um, so I think the idea of supporting an English company, if because people want water, uh, want to offer water, so I think the idea of supporting a local uh, British company mm. is great, uh, supporting a which is near to where I live is great, um, and as the old saying goes, the devil's in the detail. I drive people insane, I'm sure, in my firm. I've always lived by this thing, it will do, will never do. 
And God gave me one of those really dreadful eyes that the minute I walk somewhere, I'm not looking, he's laughing because he knows it. This is Jack listeners, <laughs> Jack Cassidy, our lovely friend. <laughs> uh, PR manager. But I will walk somewhere and literally within two to five seconds of walking into a space, I'll see the one thing that is wrong. And I don't look for it, it just mm. jumps to me. Uh, something isn't as it should be, it just jumps, just jumps out of my eye. Um, so the de detail, always for me, detail is, the little detail is the most important. I said this to you before we started chatting, and thank you so much, because I don't think I've ever heard you talk this way about the entire story. Yeah, I think that, and, it, and it's my path. Mm. So the thing that I don't do, which is where I, when you talk about what succeeds in business, I think that if you don't stand for something, mm. then how can you expect to succeed? So the one thing I've always said about my work, if you picked up one of my senses, I really hate it, it really wouldn't upset me. If you pick up one of my works and say, I love it, of course I'm very, very happy. The thing that would really upset me is if I ever, ever heard somebody say, that's quite nice. Oh! <laughs> because then, of course, what if I made? Saying banal. Mm. And uh, I'm not a banal human being. You'd rather polarise. Yeah. So what I want is to engender an emotion in you, a feeling. Because scent is about a feeling, surely. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, I, uh, you know, however I do what I do, I have never, ever, ever said that I'm better than anybody else. Mm because I don't believe I am. We all have different skills. Lots of people turn around and say very kind things to me, and I turn around and say, well, it's just how I earn my living, you know, and how lucky am I? Mm. I've managed to find a way of living my life, because it's not a job, this is really a way of life. Mm. Um, so I've managed to find a way of earning a living. I've created a brand without knowing that I was sort of doing it, although I was aware it was happening as it was going along. And how lucky am I? Mm. And it's really that, it's just how lucky am I? And you know, how lucky am I that um, you know, I have people like Jack who I wouldn't be sitting here with you today without him. And I have uh, Christian upstairs who's my assistant who makes my life very, very simple mm. and easy. So I do my bit in the play, but I also have to understand the value of everybody around me. And I think in lots of companies, people don't understand that. Mm. Um, anyone who knows me, if, uh, if I have ever written an email to you, you will see I sign everything off just with the letter R, and underneath it says nothing. And I have a thing about people who get hung up on status through a title, because mm. I think they're fools. You know, one of my favourite things about when I first met you, which was about 15 years ago, mm -hmm. and we had a, a lunch or something, over the years we've had a handful of lunches, mm -hmm. and the, perhaps the most exciting thing about them isn't the lunch, don't be offended, this is going somewhere nice. It's the note that, <laughs> it, it's the note that appears afterwards that uh -huh. I still have a collection of your beautiful handwritten notes. Thank you. Well, that comes from childhood. We were always um, told that we, like on birthday or Christmas, we, could, we had to write the thank you note. And I think that the world is a funny place because um, it's like for the work you do. I'm sure you have a lot of people who are totally obsequious to you because they want something. Just that, they want something. They want your support, they want your help. All journalists have that. And you can say that the other way around. Often a journalist may want support or help from somebody or other. Too often, people I'm sure people will be very upset and they'll moan if the thing isn't on a page or it isn't, you know, it isn't on the next podcast, mm. say. 
they'll be upset and they may be tell you that they're upset. Mm. But the thing of just turning around and saying thank you takes really no time. Mm. And all of us love that. I mean, the thing of, if you ask most people what, what floats your boat most at work, the first thing people always say is salary. That's, you know, mm. intuitively what people say. But when you actually start talking to them, it's not that at all. It's the thing of knowing that you're valued. Mm. It's the thing of knowing that when I go into work every day, even though you know this is going on in my private life, which is utter rubbish, I have tried to do the best I can, and somebody's turned around and said thank you. Uh, you can ask Jack. Uh, every, every single day when I leave the office, I thank everybody for what they have done, right mm -hmm. or wrong. Right. I never leave the office without thanking all of my team for everything they have done, ever. Never, ever have done. And I think that, um, you know, I'm sure I'm a total bastard for lots of other things. I'm trying to make myself come up like a, some great saint with this stuff. But I just think that it, it, it to me is the most basic thing in the world, just to turn around and say thank you. And the other thing that, as a um, uh, philosophy is maybe the wrong word, but a modus operandi, I've always said to Jack, the day somebody you've dealt with is out of work is the day you take them for the very, very best lunch you ever take them for. Now. Is that right or mm -hmm. wrong? Right. I've always said it. Because all of us will remember who supports us through the tough stuff. And I remember the day that I went freelance. You had Rebecca, who at the time was your PR manager, yeah. call me. And you took me for lunch at Claridge's. Yeah. And, I, and it's, it's a basic... To me, it's basic. Mm. I, and I think those things... So you've remembered it. Those things tell us everything. Mm. Everything about a relationship. Um... Because if you've had a relationship with somebody, you know, you know it very well. That you meet a million people, as I do, and some people you build a relationship with. So is a relationship just about what I can get out of it, or is it a relationship? Mm. So my thing of let's do the nice lunch is I want you to understand that actually it's not about what you were doing, it's the relationship. So just... With your fragrance and with all the little touches, you just have a way of making people feel very special. And I'll never forget the dinner that you did at the Dorchester. And I didn't know what I was in store for. I thought it was just a, a perfume launch, but it was a private dinner. And it was the Clive, is it Christian? Mm -hmm. And it was such a small... I don't know if you were there, Jack. But when we finally got introduced to the fragrance, you spoke beautifully in the centrepiece, if you remember, had ripped oranges. Mm -hmm. I remember the That's, detail. I'd been climbing on the table doing it all. Yes, and you <laughs> described, I think it was some sort of, um, something had been molten rubber or something mm -hmm. had been on the walls, and you described yes. this beautiful suite. Because the suite was designed by Oliver Messel. Um, Oliver Messel was a very famous set designer. He was huge friends with people like the Queen Mother and Noel Coward and all that set, that mm. period. And um, I talked to you how I knew about the modern rubber, did I? I, I was being interviewed. Uh, I was being interviewed. And uh, I can't remember what it was for, who, who and what it was for. I was being interviewed. And the woman said, let's do the interview in my father's uh, flat. He has a flat above one of the shops in Bond Street. Well, I had no idea that there were private residents. Mm. It just never crossed my mind. Um, uh, I, uh, I'm a Londoner, I know London, uh, London quite well, but didn't cross my mind. Anyhow, so we merrily go into this lov lovely flat, and uh, it, it had a slightly theatrical touch to it. Um, anyhow, so I was sitting there, and her father was there, and I suddenly saw a very small photograph, and it was of the Queen Mother. And in a corner, literally about this big, 
It's a little detail. And I said, isn't that in the Oliver Messel suite at the Dorchester? And the father suddenly piped up. He was shocked. He was really tiny. Mm. But I just love that set of rooms. I don't quite like them. I just love them. Mm. They may be my favourite set of rooms anywhere in the world. And um, this man turned around and said that he had been Oliver Messel's assistant. And he was young compared to Oliver Messel at that time. And uh, after Oliver Messel died, he was charged with looking after the entire estate and so, uh, of, not financially, but of all the, the legacy, mm -hmm. if you like. And so the only person who can touch anything in the Oliver Messel suite at the Dorchester is this man. I, of course, felt very sorry a little bit late when I became very aware that I had totally ignored the journalist because the farm right now in this huge conversation about the interior and what it was like working for Oliver Messel and and. And then he very kindly said that he would um, love to give me a private tour in the Oliver Messel suite, where he told me that the, all of the picture frames and detail is made from pneumatic rubber, which was a new invention. And they had worked, worked out that they could do other things with it than make tires. And so these things which look like beautiful, you would think that they were made from wood covered in uh, gesso, uh, uh, stuk, you know, what do you call it? It's gesso, I think, and then gilded. Um, suddenly they weren't, they're just made from rubber. And so he showed me that they moved, which I think I most certainly did, which I'm sure nobody's supposed to do because mm. the whole thing is, is listed. <laughs> but I love that, you see, I love detail. I love the thing of knowing where things yeah. come from, which is how then ideas come in my mind when I'm creating things. Um, it's through that depth of knowledge of mm. something. Or, if I don't know it, I love the thing that sometimes a project will make me do a lot of research. And I've, I've always been curious. You're I mean, a sponge for... Yeah, I, information. Like a child. We, sadly, as we get older, we become nervous to ask the questions children ask. How, mm. who, why? Because we should be grown up and know everything. Like rubbish. Of course we shouldn't know everything. We should learn about things. And um, part of my great mission, I had a very, very nice card from one of our team um, saying how much they appreciate how we invest in, in somebody young. Um, and I think that is important. I think that everybody in, in everybody in life needs someone to teach them. Mm. Uh, it's not my job to teach everybody, but I also have, I do believe I have a, a duty. I think everybody does responsibility of passing on things to another generation. And so it gives me huge pleasure to watch within my own team as people as people grow and they become more confident and they become better for it. Mm -hmm. That's a lovely thing to watch. And of course, from a very selfish point of view, the company benefits from it. Mm -hmm. But the thing that gives me pleasure is watching how, how people grow and helping people understand something without feeling threatened by it. Because you have quite um, a unique skill set. There aren't, like I said, I don't think there are many people who think in the same way you do, certainly not about fragrance so pass it how do you pass that on in a way that how do you pass that on I don't know um, I, I can only pass it on by uh, as I have conversations with people that work with me um, trying to help them understand why something is the way it is have they thought have they ever thought of mm. it's the only way you ever can do it by 
sharing information without telling people, because nobody wants to listen to a dictator. So making people stop and think about things. Mm -hmm. Have you ever thought of, well, if you do it that way, maybe the result will be this, but have you ever thought if you did it like that? And the other thing that's very important, you know, with, if I talk about Jack, because Jack's sitting here, but I'd say, uh, if somebody wants to try something, I always turn around and say to them, well, why not? You know, just, the why not line was actually my mother's. My mother always brought us up on this thing of why not. So if you want to try something, why not? Mm. You know, and then learn from it. So if you go and do it and the thing's a disaster, try to remember never to do it again. <laughs> but if you do it and it works, then think why did that work and see can you apply it somewhere else? And that makes people have confidence to then go off and, and grow. Mm. Um, and you can only do that in a sort of nurturing way, which, which I hope is something that I do with people that work with me. I hope that people feel... Um, I hope they feel it, but I hope that they're maybe not aware that I'm doing it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Because otherwise that could be smothering, or it could be... It, it, inappropriate is not quite it, but... So I, I hope that people in the end maybe one day stop and think, oh, That's and right. yes, I realise that, Yeah. but maybe they don't realise that. Right now. Right now. Yeah. Thank you, Roger, for your time. This <laughs> Thank has been you. fascinating. Thank you. Please Thank come you. back and can we do a cheeky, naughty Madam Jojo's podcast? A hundred percent. Are you going to set the date? <laughs> yes, no, I will, but we should do it uh, under cover of darkness. With, uh, one, two or three spritzed everywhere. Um, I love it. And thank you very much. Thank you. It's been thank fascinating. You.